Well, this morning we are doing the last of our Outsiders series, not because we have reached by any means the, uh, the end of those in the Bible who might have been considered outsiders and have exhausted that list so that there are no more that we could look at, but rather because, A, we are going to look at Jesus as possibly the ultimate outsider in some ways in Scripture today, um, and B, we want to uh, transition into Advent. Just a little bit of a teaser for Advent. There are four Greek words for love used in the New Testament um, to talk about the church and about our relationships with one another. And we are going to follow the four words of love for the four Sundays of Advent. And uh, so that, I hope, uh, Lord willing, will be a wonderful opportunity for us to dive into not only what Christ came to do as a child so long ago, but also how Christ calls us to live our lives together and in this world too. So this morning, uh, contrary to what you might think, instead of looking at a New Testament passage about Jesus, though we are looking at Jesus as possibly the ultimate outsider, we are looking at an Old Testament passage about Jesus. And this is a prophetic vision from Isaiah. And Isaiah, if uh, for refresher or whatever, Isaiah was a prophet largely to the southern kingdom of Judah during uh, the reigns of uh, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, all kings of Judah. He was uh, around the 8th century B.C. So this is like seven to 800 years before Jesus was born. And yet, uh, within Isaiah, we see a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of information prophesying truths about Jesus. In fact, there's a whole section of Isaiah called the Servant Songs, which include um, prophecies throughout about Jesus, who is the suffering servant, as characterized in there. It is a message of hope in a very dark time for Judah. Because, you see, what Isaiah is talking about in, in much of the rest of the book of Isaiah is he's talking about the sins and the failings of Judah as a kingdom and how, as a result of their disobedience and their unfaithfulness, they are going to have to face consequences. And some of those consequences include being sent into exile. It's generally not a cheery message, except that it sort of kind of is. I mean, in the short term, in the immediate term, uh, and for the next 70 years or, or more, it's not very encouraging. But the reality is, is that God promises God promises not only will the people of Judah return to the land of Judah, but also He promises that the Messiah will come. And so we read in Isaiah chapter 53 about the promised Messiah, except that He doesn't look like you might think He would. So listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord 
been revealed. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. I'm just going to pause every once in a while to insert some information. So that he grew up, the he that is being referred to there is the Messiah. He, the Messiah, Jesus, grew up before him, that is, God. So Jesus grew up before God like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to Him. Nothing in His appearance that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised. And when we and we held him in low esteem, you hear all the outsiderishness there, right? People don't even want to look at you know. I hope you don't do this, but I would understand if you did, and I've done it myself to my shame. You go into the city, right, and you walk downtown. And you see someone sitting or standing there begging for change. And and maybe you don't have any change. Maybe you don't have any cash with you. or, Or maybe you have principles that say you shouldn't give to people who are begging on the street. And, and that's we can talk about that some other time. And I'm certainly not judging you for that. But sometimes we are tempted to not look at them. Right? We don't want to make eye contact. Either because we're ashamed of ourselves or we're embarrassed for them or or maybe we have some struggles, right? We don't want to look, right? And, And just side note, it is better, far better, in my opinion, from a Christian perspective, to look the person in the eye and say, you know, I'm sorry I don't have anything for you or um, I don't have anything for you but God's blessings to you or good morning even or good day or hello or something is better than just looking away. Regardless, I've been there, you've been there perhaps, right? This is what Jesus is described like, right? People hide their faces. They don't want to look at him. He's despised. They just look away. And we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on Him. By His wounds, we are healed. We all, Isaiah moves on, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on Him, that is Jesus, (coughs) excuse me, the Messiah, the suffering servant, He has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Verse 7, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet He did not 
open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not (coughs) open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was (coughs) punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, (coughs) because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession the transgressors. The word of the Lord. Now there there are, amen, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> I was focused. Uh, there are a number of ways to look at this. Remember when we looked at, uh, we looked at Genesis and we looked at how there were, uh, what, what are titled the curses <clears throat> that God gives to Adam and Eve and the serpent after they have chosen to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? And, and, and I, I, I said to you that, you know, we, we, we can look at it <coughs> as, as it is sometimes looked at, as in God gives these curses to the people as a punishment for what they have done. In other words, you did wrong, you need to have punishment, Right? That is one way to look at it, and certainly uh, a, a very common way to look at it. Another way to look at it is that these consequences are the inevitable results of their actions. They are not things that God did to them as punishment, but rather they are just the natural things that happen when you do this thing. It's a little bit like this, right? Um, it's the difference between these two scenarios. I am going to use a table saw, okay? I am going to use the table saw without any of the safety guards or anything like that. I'm not even going to use a piece of wood to push the thing or anything like this. I'm going to use it this way. And somebody catches me, Jim catches me doing it, and he says, I'm going to teach you a lesson. I'm going to punish you for your bad behavior using that saw without the guards by chopping off a finger. That'll teach you. You'll know now, right? This is what happens, right? Okay, that's punishment that Jim might give out for me. I I think it's a little unreasonable. You should be a little bit more generous and gracious, Jim, but that's, that's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is that I go to use the saw without the, the safety things and so on and so forth, and as a result, I chop off my own finger. In either case, the consequences are that I lose a finger. 
But whether it is a punishment or simply the natural outcome of me being a dumbhead and using the saw without the safety guards, that's two whole different things, right? I said to you that as far as I could tell, in Genesis, the curse that comes upon Adam and Eve is not a curse as in God is punishing the people or the serpent or whatever. God is rather outlining for them the natural consequences of what they have done. In fact, God is gracious and kind and and He restricts the impact of their bad decisions. How do we know this? Because God kicks them out of the Garden of Eden. And why does God say that he's going to kick them out of the Garden of Eden? He says he's going to kick them out of the Garden of Eden because if they stay in the Garden of Eden, then they will eat of the tree of life and they will live forever. And why is that a bad thing? Because then they will have eternal life in their broken sinful state. And that's no good, right? Why would you want to live with yourself being broken and messed up the way you are forever? There's an issue that needs to be addressed before you or I can have eternal life and have it be good. And so, and so God in His mercy takes away the opportunity for Adam and Eve to eat of the tree of life. And therefore, he takes away the opportunity for them to punish themselves in some horrible, terrible way by having eternal life in a sinful, broken, fallen state. And he also has a plan for how he can fix the broken, fallen yuckiness so that people can have eternal life under Jesus Christ and have it be good instead of horrible, like horror-ible, <laughs> right? So, so God makes that plan. Hence the promise that the offspring of Eve will crush the head of the servant, the serpent, excuse me, even though the serpent will bite his heel. And so too, as we come to Isaiah here, there are a couple of ways of looking at this as well. And this is, I know this is maybe uncomfortable, but this is one of the really cool things, I think, about our faith, is that there is mystery involved in our faith. Right? We, we read in Psalms and other places, who has known the mind of God? Who can fathom it? And, and God himself says to Job, for example, when Job questions him about his own suffering, God says to him, who are you? Where were you when I flung the stars into space and named them one by one? Who are you? Right? There is mystery there. There are things that we cannot fathom or understand. And so, too, here and in other places where we talk about what Jesus exactly accomplished on the cross as a human being and also as fully divine, there is mystery there. There are many different images of what God has done in that. 
One of the images here could be drawn out as you look, uh, and, and theologians will talk about this as uh, penal substitutionary atonement. In, in other words, they will look at God and say, okay, here, we have a reality. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one. God is just and merciful and righteous and holy and grace-filled and loving. So how does justice and grace fit together? How does um, righteousness and mercy fit together? How does holiness and love fit together? How do those things fit together? And we struggle with that because sometimes in our limited humanness, we sort of think that it's one or the other. Either God is merciful or He is just. Because you can't really have justice that's harsh and mean and nasty, it feels like. You can't really have justice and love in in the same thing. But anybody who's been a parent knows that you can be loving and just at the same time. right? And, And that from the child's perspective, this can seem really harsh. But from the adult's perspective, it is necessary and good and loving. So one thing you can draw out here is this idea of penal substitutionary atonement. In other words, God in three in one, God in the Trinity, it's almost as if, you know, when Adam and Eve fall, and this is not by any means a perfect picture, but it's almost as if God three in one discusses this within God's self. You can almost hear it. Where, you know, God the Father says, oh, I love these people, but look what they've done. Justice needs to be done about their rebellion. Justice needs to be done. We need to do the right thing. And, and Jesus says, yeah, of course, absolutely. We totally need to do the right thing. And yet we love them. And we want to extend mercy to them and grace. And the Holy Spirit says, I hear you guys. You know, this is a real dilemma. What do we do? How do we do this? How do we satisfy both justice and righteousness and holiness and love and mercy and grace? How do those all fit together? And and the Godhead says, look, there are consequences for what humanity has done. But how can we, how can we transform those consequences into something that will eternally be ultimately good. And so, God the Spirit, I've heard it put this way, God the Spirit says, hey, you know what? I'll go. I'll go and I'll become one of them. I'll become, I'll I'll get, like I'll set aside all of my divine power. I'll set aside everything. I'll become despised i'll become someone who's not a not even a leader according to human thinking i'll become in very nature a servant and i will take their punishment so that justice may be satisfied not that justice is a higher god beyond god or anything but rather that the right must be done because god is just and so jesus comes to earth and takes our punishment for us that is sort of the penal substitutionary atonement way of looking at things another way to look at things and these are not necessarily i don't think 
these are not necessarily mutually exclusive. In other words, it could be this way, or it could be that way, or it could be both. And I'm not really sure. And really, it's beyond me. So why don't I just accept that it's awesome? Right? And so a second way to look at it is to go back to those consequences that we have unloaded on ourselves and, and, and see that God sees those consequences, those things that are natural, that come out of what we have done. We have chopped off our finger. Actually, worse, we have gouged out our own hearts. <laughs> right? And the natural consequences for that are a whole bunch of things. But one of them is that we don't have the opportunity to have eternal life because having eternal life in a broken and fallen state would be miserable and horrible for us. So something has to be done about that. And so Jesus is sent to us to take on some of the consequences, not punishments necessarily, but consequences of what we are done, to, as it were, mitigate the worst of the consequences that we have been given, right? And, and this is how that works in Isaiah 53, right? <clears throat> Excuse me. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God. This is verse 4. Stricken by him and afflicted. You see, you see, you could think of that as in God is, is doling out the proper and just punishment upon Jesus for our sins and that Jesus is standing in our place. You could also look at, look at it as in, you know, in spite of God coming to heal our sickness and our disease, Right? We despised and rejected Him. We, He took up our sickness, verse 4. He took up our sickness, the sickness we had taken into ourselves in the Garden of Eden and bore our suffering. He became like one of us, understanding all of the punishment and sin that we poured out upon ourselves in the garden and following, right? We thought of him as punished by God. Isaiah doesn't say whether that's accurate or not. We thought of him as punished by God, but maybe he wasn't punished by God. He was willingly taking on our sickness. But he was, regardless of whether he was being punished by God or just taking on our sickness or somehow both of those things, he was pierced for our transgressions, for all the sickness and sin and dirt and grime and yuckiness and brokenness. All of that, he took the spear. He went on the cross. He was crushed for the consequences of what we have done. And so Jesus became for us the ultimate outsider. He, he emptied himself, the Bible says, of everything, becoming in very nature a servant. 
He walked among us. He was rejected by the vast majority of people, it seems, and certainly by the religious and political leadership of the time. He was an outsider of outsiders. And ultimately, we shouted and screamed for his death. And what does God do with His only begotten Son who has sacrificed Himself for us, been rejected by us completely, taken on all the blight and the sickness and twistedness of humanity and this universe that we have corrupted? What does God the Father and the Holy Spirit do with this? Of course, they do what they have always done. Within the Godhead, we hear John saying, God is love. God God cannot be not love. It's not possible. And God has always, since, since always, there's no before, God has always been in loving relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so God continues to do so, even though the grime of a universe was poured out on Jesus. God says, you are still my son. I love you. I welcome you. You are mine. And in doing so, in doing so, because Jesus has become one of us, and this is bizarre, Jesus has become one of us, because He has become one of us, Jesus is welcomed always into the Trinity, and suddenly, so are we. Not that, not that we're equal to God, not that we can walk around going, hey, yo, whoa, right? Not like that, right? But we are brought in to the fellowship of God. Which is crazy. And this is what we've seen God doing with all the outsiders, isn't it? From our perspective, it looked like they were rejected. Either they were rejected because they had done things that broke relationship with God, or they had done things that broke relationship with society, or they were rejected because they didn't fit in with what society wanted, or they were rejected because of circumstances that were largely out of their control. They were rejected, right? Adam and Eve were seemed from our perspective to be outsiders because they kicked themselves out in a way. They, they rebelled against God. They tried to reject God, but God brings them in and says, you are mine. I love you. I will provide salvation for you. It's going to work out okay. And Noah was an outsider because he was faithful in a deeply wicked time. And God brings him in, loves him and says, oh, you're, you're my my child, I am going to save you and your family, right? And, and I'm not going to get these in order, but Hagar is, is, is because of circumstances that are somewhat her fault, but somewhat not. She is rejected and abused by Abram and Sarai. 
and, and she runs away, but God says, no, you are mine. So much so that she says, you are the God who sees me. You see me. And he promises that she will be a great nation. And then we hear about Rahab, who, who is a traitor to her own people and, and who is not belonging in one camp or another except for her loyalty to God, whom she really doesn't know that much of except that he, he has struck fear in the, in the hearts of all the people of Jericho. But God says, yeah, you're mine. I love you. You're mine. And then we see that so poignantly in the centurion Cornelius and how Jesus is, uh, gives Paul the vision of these unclean animals and says, don't call anything unclean that I have made clean. And so Cornelius the Gentile with whom the Jews weren't even supposed to visit is brought in. You are mine. And of course the reality is, is that None of these people were ever outside of God's love. That's not really possible. God is love. There is nothing you can do that will make God love you any more. And there's nothing that you can do that will make God love you any less. He just loves you. The only difference is that either they didn't know about it or they weren't ready to accept it. And so God brings them in so that they can see His love that has always been there. They can be enveloped in that love. And so too with Jesus. Jesus, God's own Son, whom God loves, of course, because they are one, three in one. God loves within God's self perfectly and awesomely. God's Son comes to earth and is incarnated as a human baby at Christmas. And we despise and reject Him and all the sickness and brokenness and filth of the world is piled upon Him and God loves Him. And God in Jesus Christ feels abandoned because that's what brokenness does. That's what sin does. Sin is ultimately the breaking of relationship or at least the attempt to break relationship between ourselves and God, ourselves and others, ourselves and this world. And so God, God in Jesus Christ, as He is piled with all of this grime, He feels the, the weight of sin and brokenness and, and feels as if he is separated from God. But God never stops loving God. God never stops loving us. There's never a time when we are not in God's love. But of course, God is a God who will not force us to accept that love because he loves us. How loving would it be if I said, you have to love me. I love you, so you have to love me. Thank you, I love you too. Right? So God gives us that freedom and, and, and Jesus, of course, because Jesus is God and Jesus is human, the perfect human, Jesus loves God. And this is what God does with the outsiders. And this is what God did with you and with me. We thought 
We thought we were separated from God. We thought that we were broken and ruined and and that God couldn't possibly love us. Or we thought that we were strong enough and good enough on our own and we didn't need God. Or we thought that God didn't exist. Or we thought, I don't know what we thought. I don't know what you thought. I know that I thought that I was so terrible that God couldn't possibly love me, but I was wrong. And He didn't just start loving me when I accepted salvation. He loved me all along. And same with you. He saw you before the foundation of the world. He planned good things in advance for you to do. He knit you together in your mother's womb. Saw you and loved you from before time existed. And it never stopped. And so, if we were ever outsiders, it was only us fooling ourselves. And of course, this reminds us of how we need to look at those around us who have not received the love of God, who are not, like, who have not accepted it, I mean, who have not, who have not embraced the relationship with God who has always loved them. We need to see them as God does. I love you. Doesn't matter what you've done or where you've been, or who you've hurt doesn't matter. I love you. This is Jesus, the ultimate outsider for us, and the ultimate insider for us, too. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Thank you so very much for salvation through Jesus Christ alone. Oh God, we don't, we don't know all the details of how all of it works or anything like that. And truth be told, it is a mystery beyond our understanding in a lot of ways. And yet we do know this, oh God that You emptied Yourself of everything, becoming in very nature a servant, and that You did so for us so that we could see Your eternal love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not only within Your Godhead, within the three in one, but also that we could see that love in the clear light of Jesus for us and this world and all who have ever lived or ever will. Lord, may we see people in that same light, O oh God. Not, not, not at the expense of justice or righteousness or holiness. No, because that is, that is impossible. Really. But rather that justice and righteousness and holiness and mercy and grace and love would walk hand in hand as we envelop and welcome those who seem to be outsiders in the light of your great love for them. 
Lord, we know. We know that You did. You did all of this for us. And we know, O oh God. And we are grateful. Lord, help us to welcome with great love and hospitality all of those who know you and all of those who do not yet, that no one may be an outsider even in their own hearts anymore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.